Well, good morning. Welcome again to Fellowship Nashville. We are uh, in the midst of a series through the Gospel of John, a series which we have been looking at the person and work of Jesus and, and, and trying to um, point out the very purpose that John wrote this book is that we would believe in his name and find life. And so our hope is that you would find life as you understand who Jesus is and what he offers you this morning. And so uh, this morning we're going to be finishing up the chapter 8 of John's gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, grab them and let's turn to John chapter 8. And we're going to deal with the closing verses this morning. Now, if you don't have your Bible, don't worry. It will be on the screens to my left and right or before you um, if you're watching online. And so I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word um, as a sign of reverence as we come this morning. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48. Now the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets, who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we ask that uh, we would have eyes to see the wonderful things in your law. Lord, the reality is, is that we often navigate this life without an accurate sense of who we really are. And Father, we pray this morning, not only would we see who Jesus really is, but to see how that impacts who we are are, and that we would learn to fight all the voices that would tell us otherwise. And so, Father, we ask now to speak. We ask that we, our hearts would be attentive and ready, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, for most of our married life, my wife and myself really never went anywhere. I mean, uh, we visited family. We uh, maybe took a little weekend away at a place we got for free or tried to sell us a timeshare. Um, But for the most part, we didn't go places. In fact, when we took our uh, honeymoon, uh, it consisted of me borrowing my grandmother's station wagon and driving to the Gatlinburg of South Carolina, also known as Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And uh, we did so essentially on a Groupon. And so when I had the opportunity several years ago to go to Germany for a mission trip, I thought, how cool would it be if my wife joined me after the trip and we got to take our first real adventure together? And so my wife was ecstatic, and she began to um, prepare our game plan for this trip. And it kind of hinged on my ability to get a SIM card that I would have service overseas. Um, We'll just say that did not happen. And so I was dependent upon a few spotty Wi-Fi spots to try to get enough map to make it to our next destination. Well, um, the very first day on the trip, about halfway from Berlin to Munich, 
my GPS goes blank. And I'm like, oh boy, we got a problem. Fortunately, my wife thinks ahead, and she planned, and so she uh, had a game plan circa 1998 and printed off MapQuest directions, which worked for a little while until we missed a turn. And then we circled around Munich for two hours, um, accompanied by a colorful commentary by yours truly. I'm not proud of it, but that was the reality. And it goes to show you, no matter how much planning, no matter how many tools or resources at your disposal, if you do not know where you are, you're going to have a hard time navigating through life. And the reality is the same is true of us as we go through this thing called life. And it's not just because we don't know where we are, it's ultimately because we do not know who we are. You see, when you don't know who you are, you're going to have a hard time navigating life. You see, we operate out of our identity. You know, it affects how we think, what we desire, what we pursue. It affects our relationships. And so when, when our identity is out of whack, our lives are out of whack. And you see, God never intended us to live this way. In fact, when you think all the way back to the beginning, when God created mankind, Adam and Eve, he created them and spoke to them the reality of their identity. They were made in the image of God. That their connection to him would be the defining element of their life. And that from that, that solid, sure assurance, that they would be enabled to navigate this thing called life and to go out throughout the world. But a problem occurred, right? Is that Adam and Eve believed a lie. And what it brought was disconnection from God and in regards to their identity, a disconnection from him as well. And from that day on is that mankind found ourselves in an identity crisis. Struggling and groping around, trying to make our way, walking around in the darkness. Now we need to understand a little bit about our identities. You see, our identities are our understanding of what distinguishes us from others and gives us a sense of dignity and worth. Now sociologists tell us that our identities are formed by a myriad of different things. They can be formed by your families, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic standing, your gifts, your abilities, your performances, and your vocation, just to name a few. But the million-dollar question is this. How do they form your identity? Do they distinguish you, or do they define you? Do they give you dignity? Now, what you and I must understand is that when Adam and Eve sinned, we became disconnected from the core of our real identity. And what happened is it left a vacuum in our life. And so inevitably, something would have to come and to fill that great void. And so for a majority of mankind, we began to experience a displaced or rather replaced identity. That one of the things that distinguish us moved to the center and began to define us. That we became one minutia or part of a distinguishing mark of ourselves. In a recent Table Talk magazine article, they spoke of this, in essence saying that we become these things. They mentioned you become your work. That your identity becomes defined by your performance. And so our busyness, our activity, especially our employment, filled the identity void in our hearts and helped define us. We become defined by our history, our pedigree. We look to our backgrounds, our family life, 
our social connections, our, 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 our racial identity to then become what connects us and locates within a certain community and entitles us to certain benefits. We become our sexuality. We're identified through our passion. In this view, sexual desire is the most basic reality about us and determines how we interact with the world and view ourselves. And you see, when we begin to be defined by the things that distinguish us, is it doesn't enlarge us, it diminishes us. You become less. You are far more than your work. You are far more than your performance. You are far more than your sexuality. You are far more than your beauty, your strength, your intellect, or the success you've achieved in your life. You've been made in the image of God. And yet we lose sight of that. We, we displace and replace that. And not only do we become diminished, we become unstable. You see, uh, the core of our identity was to be that which rooted us. It anchored us. Because let's be honest, life is very volatile. That all the things in our world seem to be constantly in flux, including the things we define ourselves by. So if you define yourself by your vocation, guess what? Your business could fail. You could be fired from the workplace. You may have a transition. And eventually, let's be honest, we're going to retire. If you're defined by your looks, if you're defined by your strength, if you're defined by an ability, just like we talked about last week with Tony Hawk, eventually that ability will fade. If you're defined by your performance, some days you're going to do okay. Others you will not. And you see, when your identity is based upon and defined by all these things that are unstable and in flux, as you find yourself to be in flux, you're constantly like a ship on a stormy sea, up and down, not knowing where you are, and you become disoriented, lost, and unfulfilled. And, and even when we begin to understand the identity that Jesus offers to us, there can be a bit of a distortion, a misconception. And I want you to hear me out because at first it may sound a little off, but I want to explain what I'm actually trying to say. You see, for many of us, we rightly understand that Jesus becomes the core of our new identity. That it is stable and sure because we have, by grace, put our faith in him and have been brought into union with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that his death is ours, his life is ours, his identity is now ours. And so we're new creations. But what often happens is that we begin to see this as displacing the other aspects of our identity. We, we begin to see the thing that's supposed to define us begins to deny the things that distinguish us. In other words, we become faceless, nameless, neutered versions of ourselves. Now, at first glance, it seems really right. It's just kind of like when you hear that someone is colorblind. But the reality is what that means is that they're losing sight of the multi-color, um, uh, technicolor, HD reality of life and reducing it to a monochrome version of itself. Yes, that Jesus is the core of our identity, but the beauty is that it's so much more than that as well. Because from this core, from this thing that defines us, it then both supersedes, informs, and redeems the thing that distinguishes us. You don't, you don't become less you. You become more you. Why? Because you're being redeemed, being transformed, and that your life better reflects the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
And so what happens is that when you have a wholehearted embrace of the whole Christ, you begin to be able to have a wholehearted embrace of yourself in and through Christ. Does that make sense? And so you begin to see that all the things that you have received come from his good and sovereign hand. You know what happens? You begin to be able to take a compliment. I don't know about you, but that's been one of the hardest things for me to to engage in my life. I don't really know what to do in that moment. And all of a sudden I can say, this is his gift. I can accept it. It doesn't glorify him to diminish what he has offered me and what he's using through me. You see, when I have a right-sized view of myself, uh, I'd be able to see and to live differently. And the way we gain a right-sized view of ourselves is to see ourselves through his eyes. To see ourselves through the lenses of how God sees us. And you see, when you begin to see yourself through those lenses, you become incredibly dangerous for Jesus. You know why? Because you're free. You're not bound. And here's the thing. The adversary hates free people. He loves to keep them in bondage. And so he knows that the way for him to keep us living as if we're enslaved is to begin to undermine the reality of who we are and the reality of who he is. Because when we understand that our identity is rooted in Christ, an assault upon one is in essence an assault upon the other. So, for instance, you may have a very orthodox view of Jesus. You will wholeheartedly affirm who he is. But if that's disconnected from your sense of identity, you will live as a practical atheist. It makes no real difference in your life. You will still live bound. Additionally, if he can begin to undermine your confidence in the identity of Jesus Christ, is that the result will be make, it will make no real difference in your life. I mean, what difference is a dead Jewish philosopher, do-gooder, or revolutionary really make in your modern-day life? Answer, it doesn't. And so you and I must understand the assault upon his identity and our own by virtue of that is an incredibly important thing that we must acknowledge and address in our lives. That we must understand that Jesus has come for the whole person. That we embrace all that he is, that we embrace all that we are in and through him. Jenny McGill writes this. She says, in Christ, we who, were, uh, who we were is not lost but redeemed. Our individuality is not abandoned, but not everything with which we had identified can remain. Each self-conception held must be re-evaluated in light of one's new identity because sin has disoriented our human understanding. She says, because of our newfound identity with him, we're enabled to have this full-on embrace of ourselves redeemed by him. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look um, at Jesus and who he is and to see how he engages those voices that were undermine his identity. To understand both to us who we are and how we engage the voices that would undermine ours as well. Now remember, we are in the middle part of John's gospel and in a section where, where Jesus' identity is constantly a topic of discussion. In fact, it's fairly controversial. And, and, and by this point in John's gospel, it's as if we're encountering a broken record. Over and over and over again, Jesus is asserting the claim that he is God incarnate, and they're like, who do you think you are? 
over and over again. There's assault after assault after assault. And it tells us something very significant about identity, and it's this. Is that the assault upon his and your identity is not a one-time battle. It's a perpetual war. Over and over again, you and I will face these questions. You and I will face these attacks. You see, unless we are confident in who we are because of whose we are, unless we understand how to engage these voices that would tell us otherwise, that we're going to live, as it were, lost, not knowing where we really are. And so we need to learn the lessons he has for us in this text this morning. Now, our text begins in verse 48, as in essence, the, the, the Jews and the religious leaders have come to the end of the arsenals, the end of the tools and their tool chest. You see, every argument that they have brought before him has failed miserably. And so they do what most people do when they've come to the end of their resources, the end of their debates, when they understand that they do not have the upper hand and they have nothing else to bring to the table. They reduce themselves to name-calling. I mean, it's what happens in society around us today, right? We don't really want to live in an open and free society that tolerates and engages with new ideas. We want everyone to think exactly like us. And if not, we're going to label you and cancel you, right? And so that, in essence, is what they're trying to do. And so they begin to call him two names. One is they call him Samaritan. Two, they call him demon-possessed. Now, at first you may think, okay, what's the big deal about being called a Samaritan? You know, and for a second, like, isn't it very clear that he's a Jewish male? Well, you have to understand the animosity that the Jews felt toward the Samaritans, that they were heretical half-breeds. They were traitors. And so when they begin to call Jesus what would be a racial slur, what they are saying to him is that you're a heretic and you're a traitor. Then he goes on and calls them essentially demon-possessed. Now, I don't know any culture in which calling someone demon-possessed is a good thing, right? But for us to really get the import of what he's saying, we've got to understand it's akin to calling someone a Marxist in conservative circles or a fascist in liberal circles. You see, the moment someone's labeled that way, what happens to the conversation? It shuts down. Why? Because this individual no longer has a right to speak to the situation. That their voice has been silenced because they are this, and these are bad people, and we don't listen to bad people. You see, they are trying to discredit and silence Jesus by this name-calling. These are strong words from strong men. And the question will be, how does Jesus respond to this? Now, I don't know about you, but typically when faced with a similar situation, uh, I can find myself responding in one of two ways. Either, one, I shut down. I go inward, I get quiet. Or lash out. That in both, there is a lack of control. But notice here that Jesus is in utter control of the situation and of himself. And what he does is very informative. It's this. He exposes the lie. That he doesn't let it live on. Look what he says. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor the Father, and you dishonor me. Notice two things. 
He acknowledges this, he recognizes the deceit of their words and the deceit of their motivation. In other words, he says, I am not what you're saying I am. Additionally, I know exactly what you're doing. You're not trying to engage me. You're not trying to, to have a dialogue with me. You're merely trying to discredit and destroy me. I know what you're doing. And here he shows us the first step of we begin to encounter the lies, the voices that seek to undermine his identity and ours. And it's this, expose the lie. You see, what often happens is that um, it's as if uh, a myriad of voices show up at your doorstep and they begin to make their accusations. And see, what many of us do in that moment is that we shut down. And unfortunately, we invite them in. We give them a platform to continually tell us something that is untrue of ourselves. Jesus will have none of that. He meets them at the door and confidently and, 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 and clearly exposes the lie and exposes their real motivation. You see, when you encounter those voices in your head who try to distort your understanding of who you really are, who, who begin to define you, yourself by how you perform, to define yourself by, by what you've done, to define yourself by one aspect of, that distinguishes you, is that in that moment you need to confront it and expose the lie and expose what's really going on in the situation. Now, many of you are familiar with Ronda Rousey, uh, the MMA, MMA fighter, that she was incredible. She, she had a season when she went 12-0, and 0, and yet the following season, she lost terribly badly. She said after the loss this, she says, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And at the exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this. What happened? You see, something that distinguished her began to define her. And when that thing that defined her shifted, the voices started. Lying to her. You're worthless. No one will like you. No one will care for you after this. This alone is what gives you worth, what gives you dignity. You see, what she needed to do is what to do is what she typically does in the ring and put a beat on, all right? Meet him at the door, firmly confront, this is not true, and I know what you're doing. And when you face these voices, that's what you need to do. From the very get-go, when the voices start, you say, this is not true, and I know what you're trying to do. You're not trying to help me, you're trying to destroy me. And so let's call it as it is. The second thing Jesus does is he moves from exposing the lie to shifting the focus. He connects his life to the Father's. Notice what he says, verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. You see, after exposing it, he begins to connect his life to the Father. That he understands that it is the Father who defines him and defends him. Like, I don't need to come to my aid. He will. You want a testimony? Listen to him. You see, he turns the focus away from himself and onto the Father. You see, if you continually focus upon yourself, guess what? Things will not go well for you. Because there's more than enough evidence that's not going to go your way. 
You see, when you begin to shift the focus upon him, things change because he always has an answer for any accusation that comes before you. And he always is going to stand up for you in those moments. You see, he seeks the Father's glory and the Father glorifies him. Second, he grounds himself in his relationship with him. He points out that they do not know him, but guess what? I do. That he censors this reality with the reality of his relationship with the Father. And you see, when you begin to engage in this fight, that's where you have to run as well. Do you have to come and connect your life to him and to remind your heart that through Jesus Christ, I am now his child. I am now vitally connected with him and nothing will ever shift or change that reality. And third, he lives out of that reality. Verse 55, I know him and I keep his word. You see, over and over again throughout this passage, Jesus is fighting the lies with the truth of his connection with Father. You see, you cannot truly understand Jesus' identity apart from his connection to the Father, right? He is part of the Trinity. And constantly throughout John's gospel, he's bringing it back to that reality. And the reality is true of each and every one of us that you can't truly understand yourself disconnected from him. That in and through him, I'm both created in his image and I'm being redeemed and being restored to that image as well. The third thing he does is he expresses the truth. He confidently and clearly declares the truth of who he is and thus we who we are. Now, twice in this passage, he leads into this with this, those two words, truly, truly. It's aletheia, aletheia, true, true. So how does he combine the lie? How does he confront the lies? He goes to true truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. All right, understand he's saying two things about himself. One is he's claiming lordship. Keep my word. In other words, he is worthy of being obeyed. He's a master. He's a lord. Secondly, he is God. And he will never die. Now, those are big claims, right? And the Pharisees and the Jews, the religious leaders, they acknowledge that. In fact, they jump on it and say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You're saying that they will never die. Okay, let's, let's talk this through. Is that Abraham died, the prophets died. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Are you greater than a father? How does Jesus respond? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Well, wait a sec, Jesus. All right, now you're saying that you've had a conversation with Abraham? You're crazy. Man, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world could this happen? You see, in that statement, Jesus is pointing to a reality. That he was the fulfillment of all that God had promised Abraham. Remember, uh, Abraham received a covenant from the Lord, and in it he was told not only would be a father of many nations, but through his descendant, all nations would be blessed. 
And so you can imagine when given that promise by God that he was eagerly awaiting the day when that would come to fruition. And when Jesus is saying, that day has come. And it's crazy when you see those next words when it says, he saw it and was glad. There's a big question mark. How can that be? Now, now scholars have a lot of theories, one of which is that this was maybe a conversation he had with um, the king Melchizedek, the, the king of righteousness that we find in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, many believe that this was a pre-incarnate theophany or manifestation of Jesus Christ. And so it could have been in those interactions between the two because we're told he has no beginning of days and, and, and uh, no genealogy. And so many believe that's kind of why, um, uh, how this transpired. Others say it was merely by faith. And just as he looked and by faith believed the promise of God, he believed specifically about this. Or it could have been just an interaction. I mean, there's so much that are beyond here. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is this. It matters that Jesus is greater than Abraham. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised to Father Abraham all those years ago. Almost 1,900 years Now, when Jesus is confronted once more with the suggestion that he is lying and that he's crazing, look at how he responds. The second truly, truly statement in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, what's the truth? I existed before Abraham. All right, that would mean that he was... Um, he was older than 1,850 years. Second, he follows it up with those words, I am. Now, we've talked about that a lot in the last several weeks because ego me is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am. And so it's a very important theme throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, seven times we'll have the great ego me, I am statements of Jesus, where he says, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and life, etc., etc. Additionally, remember, in this chapter there are seven moments in which we find that same construction. Well, if there ever was any question about what Jesus was trying to imply by this construction, now there can be no doubt. Before Abraham was, I am that I am. You see, Jesus is saying unequivocally once more that not only am I before Abraham, I am the God of Abraham. And how do they respond? They take up stones to stone him. Now, Jesus escapes. Uh, Spoiler alert. Um, But I want you to see something. We've talked about this several times. There are those who will try to suggest to you that Jesus never claimed deity. This was a later addition by his followers. Now, these people apparently have never read the written record because over and over you see that there is no mistaking his claims. Additionally, when you just begin to look at the whole situation, whole situation to understand the, the visceral response they have to him over and over, there's no other explanation that makes as much sense than that they truly understood that he was claiming to be God himself. He would be guilty of blasphemy. That's why they wanted to destroy him. And yet despite all of the questions, despite all of the accusations, despite all of the opposition, what does Jesus do? He stands firm in the truth of who he is. You see, this 
is a man who is free. The thing is, he wants to offer that same freedom to people like you and like me. Now, I want to be really transparent about part of my own journey in this regard. You see, throughout my life, there have been voices that have told me things about myself. I've sat across from a church leader, my first church, who yelled at me, you'll never fit in, you Bible thumper. I believed in my heart that I was never going to be good enough. I could never live up to the expectations. I struggle with the sense that I would always screw up and mess it all up. And the reality was is that I found myself giving a platform to those voices over and over and over again. It culminated at the year anniversary of this church when I had an, an anxiety attack before the service. Literally, I'm, in, I'm literally sitting there and these voices are overwhelming me. I remember praying, God, just make them stop. God, just make them stop. And soon thereafter, I read about a similar struggle that Francis Chan had. And what he began to do is he began to remind himself of what was true. And so I began this discipline of, 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 of beginning... Uh, each morning, especially on a Sunday morning, reminding my heart of some things that I knew to be true. First, I'm a child of God. And my worth and dignity is not defined by anything I do this day. Two, I've been called, equipped, and gifted by God. And I can run in his power and the reality of that gifting. Three, God's going to show up today. I'm going to trust that. You see, the more and more I began to voice these truths to my heart, the more and more it began to drown out all the other lies. The more and more I found myself not bound, but free. Now, here's the reality. Like I said earlier, this is not a one-time event. This is a daily occurrence. That every day you will wake up, and when you wake up, the door's going to open, and the voices will start. And the question will be, in that moment, what will you do? My problem for so many years was that I not only entertained their suggestions, I invited them to sit down and have coffee on the couch. You see, will you engage them from day one? Will you meet them at the door and to call and expose out the lie and to expose what's really going on here, what they're really trying to say? Will you come and, and, and remind and process in your heart the reality of the truth of the gospel, of my connection to the Father through Jesus Christ and all that entails? And will I declare with confidence in this moment and drown out the voices to my voice myself. You see, there's power when we express the truth. You see, this isn't some silly Stuart Smalley mojo thing. Remember him? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. 
It's not positive thinking. It's promise-oriented thinking. So it's coming and, 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 and confirming verbally, whether internally or externally, the truth that I so desperately need to hear in that moment. You see, I have my own voices and you have yours. And the question I want you to ask right now are what are those voices telling you? Where are they saying this is where you find your real worth? Where are they telling you you'll never fit in? You'll never be loved. You could never be forgiven after that. What are those voices? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment you're in your living room. The doorbell rings and the voices start. What do you typically do? If you're like me, grab the coffee, let's sit down and talk a while. But let me change the scenario. Imagine for a moment that you're not in that room by yourself. Imagine Jesus standing right beside you or right behind you. What do you think his face looks like as he sees these false accusations being brought against you by these insidious liars? What do you think he's going to do? Is he going to sit back? Watch it all play out? Well, I think you already know the answer. He's going to drive those liars out of your home. And then here's the big question. What's he going to say to you? He heard every lie that you were beginning to believe. What is the one who gave his life for you? The one who loves you. What is he going to say? My son, my daughter, don't listen to their voice. Listen to mine. And begin to hear what he has to say to you. You know, I often think of Jesus' priestly prayer in John chapter 17 in which he says, Father, with the love with which you've loved me, love them. And I've memorized that verse, recited it, told it to myself, but you know, the thought occurred to me, what if I actually believed it? What if I actually could see and experience the depth and the breadth of God's intense love for his son? And to really let it overwhelm my heart to see that that love is being poured out upon me. Well, let me give you a hint. You would be undone. You would melt before him in awe and wonder and joy because it is unimaginable how great his love for a son is and that that is the reality of the experience and the position that you and I now have because of his grace and our faith in Jesus Christ. 
that I now stand as the object of his intense affection. And from that place, from that certainty, I'm then enabled to embrace all that he has given me and to navigate through this world. And so I ask you again, what's he saying to you? And here's what I'd like to, for you to do this week. Uh, as we encourage you each week, we'd love for you to go through discussion questions. But I really want you to camp out on this. And maybe your own life, write down the truths from the mouth of God that you need to remind your heart each and every day. Because if you don't remind your heart of the truth, you're going to fall for every lie. Who are you? I'm not my vocation. I'm not my gifts. I'm not my failures. I'm not where I come from. I'm not the, uh, the things that I have done well or the things that I failed at. I'm not at my very core any of those things. What I am at my very core is this. I'm his. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism begins when it asks, what is my only comfort in life and death? What's it that centers you, that anchors you in a volatile world through all the ups and downs that your life and your death will impose? And what the answer is? I am his. I'm his. This morning, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, let that reality and truth resound and reverberate in and through your heart and your life. Because when you are rooted and grounded in that, when he becomes the core of who you are and begins to um, inform and redeem all of the rest of the things that distinguish you and show you who you are, is that in and there, there will be this freedom and this fullness to live like no one else because you're his. So I want to invite the band to come up and for us to spend some time before him in prayer. I want you just to sell your heart in this moment. I want you to listen for his sure, true, and strong voice. And I want that voice to linger throughout this day and throughout your week. And at every moment, when any other voice would seek to take center stage over your life and your identity. That by the tools you've seen this morning, by the power of the gospel, you would drive them out, saying, you have no place here. For it is he who defines and defends me. And so, Lord, we come in this moment with all of our voices that keep us bound up in slavery. We come with all the things that we have let take the core of our identity who define who we are. And Lord, in this moment, we lay them down 
and we ask you to take your rightful place. That who we are will be defined by who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That from that fountain, all these other blessings would flow. And so, Lord, by your grace, may we embrace the whole Christ as he embraces each and every one of us. You see, who can silence the voices in our head? Jesus. Only Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you. We are off in Jesus' name.